Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Well, before we begin today, I would like to take just a brief moment to acknowledge the very special milestone of this being our 100th podcast episode. Over the past five years, we've had over 200,000 downloads, and to the best of our knowledge, we believe that we're the leading allergy podcast in the world, which admittedly is a pretty small niche area, but still pretty cool. Personally, I, I truly cherish the opportunity to serve as the producer and host of this podcast, and I've always had amazing support from the Academy leadership and staff. I do need to thank Laura Pliska and Andrew Moore for their help with editing and publishing our episodes. It really is an honor to be welcomed into your devices and accompany you all on your jogs, your commute, or while you do household chores. So thank you. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is going to be relevant for anyone who uses the internet and pretty much anyone who has friends, relatives, or acquaintances who happen to offer strong opinions on a variety of topics. And today's guest is Timothy Caulfield. Professor Caulfield is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law in the School of Public Health, and Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. Professor Caulfield is a leading expert in several areas and has over 300 peer review articles, is a best-selling book author, including one of my personal favorites titled, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? And even has his own Netflix series titled, A User's Guide to Cheating Death. I mean, I could spend the whole hour just introducing uh, Professor Caulfield, but we're all in for a real treat today with this international superstar. Timothy, wow, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast, and I'm glad that you're here to help us celebrate our, our 100th episode. Uh, a real pleasure to be here. And wow, 100 episodes. I know that it's a ton of work. So congrats to you. I love that you're out there spreading the evidence-based uh, facts. Yeah, well, thank you. It, it's been it's been a fun journey. Uh, I know you do a lot of media work, and I think we're going to have a, a great conversation today. And for full disclosure, for you and for our listeners, you're the first guest we've had out of 100 uh, that I haven't shared the questions with ahead of time. And I asked you, and you were okay with that. So the first question I have for you, why on earth did you agree to come on blindly to chat about anything that I throw your way? You're at my complete mercy here today. It's the deep trust I have for you, Dave. <laughs> but but really, I think with a topic like like misinformation, with you know the role of pop culture in our lives, having a little bit of spontaneity is a good thing, right? You know, reacting to the the conversations and not not allowing it to be too too scripted. Uh, so yeah, it's it's trust and 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 drama, I guess, <laughs> that that led me to uh, to give you that license. <laughs> All right, well, I appreciate it, and I, I will try not to abuse that trust. Uh, but since you agreed to it, here's the first question. All right, so can you tell us about the citizens in Absolute Nine and give us all the details? <laughs> Out of the gate, <laughs> out of the gate, you go with something off the wall. Yeah, so the Citizens was, there was a band I was in growing up. I don't know if you knew this about me. I, my 
my my career plan when I was like uh, a young adult was to be a rock star, which is not a very good <laughs> uh, career plan. And the Citizens was the first band I was in. And to be honest with you, I was super proud of it. It was a I was a Clash fanatic. I don't know if you're a Clash fan. I, mm, you know, absolutely. I still get misty when I hear London Calling. <laughs> I you know just. <laughs> spontaneously if I'm in a coffee shop or something like that. So the citizens, that was my first band. And, and we actually opened for the Ramones. Like, you know, it was like, we were rolling, we were, we were having a good time. And then, uh, absolute nine was, uh, more of a new wave band. And you can actually find some of our stuff on online. Please don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and what, uh, what, I, I don't necessarily need to ask your, your age at the time, uh, or now, but what uh, time period are we talking about here for these? So, so late, late high school and, and then early university. And I, and I mean, I was, we were like in vans driving around, uh, you know, Canada and you know, I, my, my dear mom, you know, she put up with it. We rehearsed in, in our basement and, um, she said she, she was so supportive. It was incredible. And this is really good. I tried to implement the, these parenting strategies with my kids. She goes, I don't care what you do, you know, just be happy, but promise me you'll finish university. And I think she, she knew, right. She she tricked me. <laughs> she tricked me. I think she knew I would fall in love with, you know, the academic side. And, and so, and, and she was right. She was right. And the other thing, by the way, which is, I guess, kind of relevant from a medical perspective, I had terrible motion sickness oh. and riding around in a van <laughs> from gig to gig. <laughs> that's tough. So my mom plus motion sickness put me on a more sensible path. Okay. What, uh, what instrument did you play and do you still play? Uh, I was the lead singer and ah. uh, yeah, guitar player. And I still play. Uh, and so do, do you know that 10,000 hour rule? You know, this idea mm -hmm. that if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you're going to be great at it. Um, I'm the example that that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> so I have played, because I even played in a bar band too, you know, and you know how often bar, bar bands play a ridiculous amount. Like we do three sets a night in some crappy bar, you know, when I was, you know, as a way to make a little bit of money. And I am still terrible. I am just so bad at guitar. And, and given the amount of time I've spent with a guitar in my hand, it's really, truly remarkable how incompetent I remain. <laughs> but my brother, my older brother is a bass player. He still plays. He's the real deal. My uh, younger brother, Sean, we still jam. He's a great musician, drummer. You know, I'm, I'm the outlier. I, I, I didn't get any of those skills. But I, I mean, as long as you're passionate about it, that's all that matters, I suppose. <laughs> All right, so you were you were guilted, it sounds like, by your mother uh, to some extent um, to go to university. But what motivated you to then pursue a law degree followed by a master's in law? Um, yeah, so I pretty early days knew I wanted to do policy work, academic work, um, and uh, in part because I, you know, how important are mentors, right? Mm -hmm. in, in people having a good mentor, and I got very early in my career, I had great mentors that. Um, um, really showed me how interesting interdisciplinary policy work can be. And so, uh, yeah, I actually went to law school not thinking I was going to be, a, you know, a lawyer or to have that kind of more traditional mm -hmm. path, although I, you know, I did an article and everything. Um, I, I really did want to do policy work. And, and part of it, I like to believe, was informed by that punk ethos, you know, the clash ethos, you know, <laughs> what would Joe Strummer do? And um and this idea that, you know, we were going to try to go out there and, and make the world a better place. And 
through through that kind of policy work. And so I, I think that's really what what pushed me in that in that direction. And um, I loved it too. I don't know what you were like. I, I it's funny. My younger son said this just last night. <laughs> just last night, he says he never wants to leave. Uh, university and and I I really loved um, studying and I loved the university environment and and um, so I think that that was really part of it. Were you like that? I I don't know. I, that was very much my life. Yeah, I I didn't realize it until recently, but I majored in molecular biology or biochemistry as an undergrad. But I took um, seven or eight psychology classes, and then it hit me after all the the social media stuff that I do and, and working with families with food allergies and anxiety that I've always had this deep seated interest as to motivations and cognitive biases. And now I'm at a point in my career where I can actually put all that together. Um, so I guess I had you know it, that it, I had those the seeds were were laid, and I just needed to let them kind of sprout and grow over the years. Yeah. So relevant now. Right. You know, and, oh and that's gosh. the other thing, as I said, with mentors, uh, um, uh, Bartha Maria Knopper, Justice Ellen Picard, uh, you know, these were people that loved interdisciplinary research. And right as soon as I became an academic, um, you know, my first research grants, all that were interdisciplinary. Right. And, and uh, you know, you work with these great teams with, you know, people with different skill sets. I, I just love it. I absolutely love it. No, I agree. We have we have a, a wonderful um, psychologist at our institution, Jack Stevens, who really taught me about behavioral economics uh, over a decade ago. And immediately the light bulb went off. And I said, oh, my gosh, this this has everything to do with non-adherence for, you know, patients with asthma. It's difficult to take your medications, all that goes into that. And the interdisciplinary work, it just changes everything. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, and I've been fortunate to work in, in your space with, you know, great allergy teams, you know, as part of Allergen, which is the National Centers of Excellence program in, in Canada. Um, and uh, you see all, you know, you see, as you said, economists, you see you know, bench mm -hmm. scientists, you see uh, humanity, ex, you know, experts coming together in, in really creative ways. And, and I, I love it. It's one of the best things about being an academic. Yeah, and you've had a very prolific and, and productive career in academia. Uh, if I may go back to a young Timothy Caulfield, the title of your master's thesis was <laughs> the, the Last Straw, The Impact of Cost Containment in Healthcare on Medical Malpractice Law. What's the 60-second elevator speech on, on what you found there? Holy cow, that you went deep. <laughs> you went deep. Hey, I don't think I've heard I, I don't think I've heard someone read out that title. I'm going to say 15 or 20 years. <laughs> it's job, a good title. I, I'm curious. I want to know what this was. <laughs> slow, slow clap for, for Dave. <laughs> um, uh, it, so I, I was, that was at a time, and it's interesting because we're going through it right now in Canada also where people were talking about health reform. It was this, you know, this whole, like, we've got to reform our healthcare system, you know, we can't afford it. And so it was an analysis of, you know, how the law was, it would and should respond to, um, health reform and what are the legal obligations. So I, I was very interested in health policy and in sort of, you know, protecting the national healthcare system. And, uh, and so that was really what that, that piece was about. And there was some very pedantic legal stuff in there. Like how does tort law respond to, <laughs> what are the, to uh, cost containment uh, strategies, et cetera. And one of the, but, but there were some very practical things. Like, so if, if you are, you're a physician and this is still relevant. I've written about it since then. If you're a physician and you have to weigh giving a, uh, a patient an expensive treatment that's going to strain the healthcare system or what you think is in the best interest of, of the patient, you know, tort law says it's always 
the latter, right? Your your responsibility is to to your patient, and that creates these fascinating tensions in a, in a system like Canada. Oh, that's fast. I mean, it, this is so relevant today, especially in, in the United States, where we're being uh, pressured more and more. Um, we're we're not being reimbursed based upon patient-centered outcomes. We're, we're being reimbursed based upon the diagnostic testing that we do. Uh, it's not even really medical decision-making, and it's really putting a strain on the way that we practice medicine because it's kind of like we don't, we're not always being nudged to do what's best for the patient in order to just kind of make a living at what we do. Uh, and it's sort of a backward system in many ways, and it needs to undergo all kinds of reform. Maybe you could you know, travel down this way and help us out with that at some point. Yeah, it's the same in Canada, to be honest with you. I think I know a lot of Americans think of of um, the Canadian system as a socialized system, sort of like the National Health Service. And it's not really. It's a private system mm-hmm. that's funded by the government, right? So it is still fee for My wife is a physician. Uh, my son is a physician. <laughs> my mm. uh, brother-in-law is a physician. My sister-in-law is a physician. I'm surrounded by it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... Um, well, my brother-in-law is an orthopedic surgeon. Is that still considered a doctor? <laughs> I'm gonna let. I'm just gonna let you hang yourself with that one. <laughs> um, but uh, we have the same same issues here. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to some of your your early work and and ongoing research and things like that, I for me, what I tease out is this central theme of ethics. Uh, it seems to really lie kind of at the heart of of all that you do. Would you agree with that? And if so, you know, why do you think that is? You know, I, I think I'd say yes to to some degree, but but also I think more broadly is, is policy. You know, what what mm-hmm. is the what's the policy, and that really is what led me to the, my latter the, the stuff I've done sort of in the latter half of my career around misinformation, and uh, because I, I've always been fascinated in what does the evidence say about a position that we're taking. So uh, whether that's a you know, position with respect to uh, stem cell policies and re- researching on embryos or, or cloning or mm-hmm. genomic, po- what does the actual evidence say about, about that um, normative, you know, position or, you know, research ethics position. And so I'd like to use the increasingly uh, the, the more of that, that idea of science or health policy to sort of capture what, what I'm interested in and what the evidence says, because as you, as you know, often the evidence isn't so good. You know, mm-hmm. It isn't so good. And that's often uh, not, uh, not surfaced in a way that it should be. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, you and I, uh, for full disclosure for our listeners, we've sort of known each other virtually um, for a few years now because of similar interests in, in these realms. But my goodness, just learning years ago to kind of click through the citations that people use and actually look and see what the evidence is that they're using to to support whatever their opinion is. My goodness, it rarely adds up. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's it's shocking. And and, and by the way, that, that goes through, you know, that, that applies to, you know, common healthcare practices, right? Mm-hmm. Right? To the, the crazy stuff that we're seeing pushed in in the wellness industry, right? Or or even something like um you know, we've done a lot of work in the stem cell regenerative medicine space, you know, beliefs around the efficacy of of stem cell therapies, right? It, it's in, it's it this really is I think um uh, one of the great challenges of our time is is making sure the best evidence is actually being used. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, you know, when 
you are so busy and you are you're such a prolific author of academic articles and then you know more popular books and things like that i love to ask this question of some of, of our guests who are very similar as, as far as their writing and things like that what does your writing process look like do you sort of think about things for a while and then just sit down and kind of type it out and, and you're done do you have an outline that you work through do you you know go section by section can you give us some some insight into how timothy caulfield's brain works yeah, I, I'd love to. And, and and first of all, I consider myself super, super lucky because I love writing. I absolutely mm. love it. And not everyone's like that. As as you know, you some people find it a real struggle. You know, even great writers, you know, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily enjoy the process that much, They even if they feel compelled to do it. I absolutely love it. So I don't have writer's block. Uh, when I travel, I can't wait to go to a pub and get a, you know, a Guinness and, and sit down <laughs> and, and write. Uh, so I feel very fortunate that I ha I'm, you know, wired that way. Um, and yeah, I do. I often start with an outline. Um, and I do have a process where I, I read and read and read around the topic. Um, even if I feel like I, I know the topic well, I, I still read and I start every day, um, reading, um, research every day. Mm. Um, and you know, I, obviously I'm maybe being a little bit exaggerating a little bit if I know I have a obligation or, or something like that, but I really do try to start every day, um, reading, uh, the latest, uh, um, research and if you follow me on twitter you'll see that happen because I'll, I'll tweet about you know i'll tweet the stuff i'm reading so that's that's i i just try to read around it and then i i do a rough outline um and the other thing i do is i i really believe that theory that you shouldn't you know writing's out continually moving forward so i always just keep moving forward and when i'm writing i don't worry about having a perfect sentence and the next sentence i i really mm -hmm. believe in and just keeping that the flow, the creative flow going. Um, and I, the other thing I do, I don't know about you, I start in the middle. Uh, and <laughs> then I, I, cause you know, often that's where the key point that you want to make is. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then I, and I build from there. Oh, that's interesting. So if you start, do you go back to the beginning or do you fast forward to the end? Does it vary based upon the topic? Uh, yeah, I usually go with, I uh, start, start in the middle and then I go back, I go to the start. And then, mm -hmm. and, uh, but all, having said that, I'll often have a hook that I want. If let's say I'm writing something for um, the popular press, you know, commentary, I'll, I'll, I'll know the hook I want. So I have a mm -hmm. sense of what the beginning is going to be. So, sure. um, you know, what the hook is going to be. Uh, and, and yeah, so I hope, but I always, because as you know, one of the challenges is getting, you don't have a lot of room. You know, you have 750 mm -hmm. words, a thousand words, a thousand, uh, you know, 1200 words sometimes. You want to make sure that key point gets the space it deserves while still really, really tight. And so that's one of the reasons I also start in the middle. No, that's well, thank you for sharing that. In, in regards to reading research most days, you know, to start your day, do you have like a, a Google alerts that you have set up or do you just go into, you know, some of the more common journals that you look at or what, what does that process look like? Yeah, all the above, all the above. You know, people ask me that a lot, and, and I, I probably should do this in a more systematic. Maybe not, because then you, I, I, I end up in surprising places. But I, I just Google the top topics. I have colleagues, I have you know, wonderful colleagues at the university that send me stuff mm -hmm. you know, that they think I should read. Um, yeah, I use social media <laughs> to to find stuff. You know, that's social media that's best, right, Dave? 
but it right. actually leads you to to good research. Uh, and then, yeah, I have I have journals that I go to, um, and, you know, etc. So I do I kind of do all the above, and and also you know, popular press too. You know, mm-hmm. uh, often have you know leads you to good studies, and I think that that is worthwhile because you want to know what is the what's pop culture talking about in the health and science space, and then go look at the studies that are informing that because sometimes there's a disconnect, right? So it's mm-hmm. worthwhile getting a sense of what's being said. No, absolutely. Um, we're going to get to the meat of the conversation in just a second, but I have to ask the question that you know is coming and I'm sure you get a thousand times. So what led to you getting your own Netflix series? And then the the important questions would be, what did you love most about the process and what did you hate most about it? Um, you know, it, it, I actually don't get asked that uh, very often. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, it was, you know, I was writing a lot in, you know, the popular press and I had a couple, you know, books that did very well in Canada out. And so there were actually a couple of producers that were approaching me. I was in um, about doing a show and, and they first, the first idea was it almost be like a talk show, which I didn't want to do. And I don't think it would have been very interesting. And, and I met with Carrie Mudd, who's the producer at Peacock Alley um, Entertainment. And we just totally synced. And, and I wanted to do something that was, um, you know, shot beautifully that was sort of cinematic, uh, that had the right tone, that was both funny and empathetic, but still very, very science-based. And she was all in. And so that that's really what, what led to it. And she had already got the ball rolling even before she brought me in with respect to funders and things like that. Um, and and I've I've been involved with a lot of documentaries before that and you know, you know, since that that show, and I've got a couple sort of in early stages now. It goes back to what we were talking about interdisciplinary research. That's a doc, doing a documentary is very much like that. So I loved that aspect of it. You know, you work with an editor, you know, you do writing. There's a little bit of this guerrilla style to it. You know, you're in a panic, you know, and and also there's this a little bit of that rock and roll element, which I really loved. So relatively small team. You've got you know one or two cameramen. You got a sound man. You got the the director you've got you and you've got usually got one or two fixers with you and that's it and you're in a van again the van (laughs) (laughs) driving around i I really miss that of course i was this old guy with these you know young 30 somethings you know late 20s people and they probably thought how did i get stuck with this old guy (laughs) but uh, i i love that it kind of felt like you were in a band again what i didn't like about it and because i had done a lot of media and i hadn't seen the side of it before it's a lot there are these long 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 days that not a lot happens i'm sure you've heard this mm-hmm. before from other people mm-hmm. who worked in the media it's a lot of waiting around and i in my head i thought okay that's all right I, i'll be able to write while i'm waiting or you know it, it just eats it's massive amounts of time and you can't mm-hmm. do anything but wait around right oh, so, interesting. but i loved it i loved it it is a crazy business and it's very you know I've very a lot of luck involved, a lot of timing involved. Um, and so that can be frustrating for an academic. You know, we're we're used to a much more, you know, clear process, and that's not mm-hmm. the case in uh in in the media. No, oh, that's so fascinating. And you know, just between the two of us, because you know, there's really nobody listening anyways. <laughs> Is this like a, a lifetime Netflix subscription now for free? Do you have to? You, no, <laughs> Netflix oh. is a black box that uh, <laughs> it's a mystery. It is an absolute mystery to me. Uh, and I think my producer, who's you know, she's done huge shows, huge shows, uh, would say the same thing. She would say the same thing. <laughs> so, oh my gosh! 
All right. Okay. So um, I would love for you to define two terms for our audience to help set the stage for the, the second half of our discussion here. So can you please define for us misinformation and then disinformation? I'm going to start with disinformation. Uh, and I actually have what I call the the misinformation continuum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On one end of that continuum is the stuff that clearly lies. The people that are pushing it know know their lies. They're often doing it for an agenda. And by the way, this often this also includes state actors, and we mm -hmm. and increasingly know it includes state actors. So disinformation is spreading lies, you know, dis untruths. <laughs> on purpose to fit, you know, to, to fulfill a particular agenda. And that's on one end of that, that continuum. You move along the continuum a little bit and, and you get individuals that are, are spreading misinformation, things that aren't true. They know that the facts don't support what they're, do, they're suggesting, um, perhaps to sell stuff, um, you know, to sell supplements or, or perhaps push, you know, uh, their own personal brand. And maybe they've kind of started buying into their own, you know, <laughs> Kool-Aid themselves, right? You know, uh, and I put people like, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, the other wellness brand in, in that kind of that, that zone of, of the continuum. Move along the continu continuum a little bit more and you have people that maybe suspect this stuff isn't correct, but it, it speaks to their values. Mm -hmm. Um and I think this is actually a really big category. And there was a really interesting re study that came out yesterday or the day before that backs this up. You know, you're almost, you don't believe necessarily the facts that you're pushing or the misinformation that you're pushing, or at least there's a willful blindness because it speaks so much to your values. You believe mm -hmm. the sentiment behind it. And so this was a big study that just came out, just came out that found exactly that, that the, a lot of misinformation falls into that category. So, you know, they probably don't think there are microchips in the vaccines, but they feel so strongly that va the vaccines are problematic, that they're willing to push that. And then you move further along that continuum and you have people that are pushing misinformation. They don't mean to. They're just trying to do what's the best for themselves, for their family, for their community. Uh, that's misinformation. And it's still the problem, of course, is it all does harm, right? It all does harm, mm -hmm. even uh, the stuff on that far end of the continuum where they don't mean to. There's no intent, right, with 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 that kind of misinformation as opposed to that disinformation on the other side of the equation. Yeah, well, that's a great explanation. And you're right. It, it's <clears throat> excuse me, this huge continuum, right? And sometimes it's it's it seems like it's relatively benign, but it's not because it just chips away at the trust that we have in evidence and things like that. You said you mentioned a word, and I want to repeat the word back to you. And without thinking, I want you to say the first thing that pops into your mind. Are you ready for this game? Got it. Wellness. Oh, wellness. Um, an infuriating health trend that started. I think with good intentions and has morphed into a multi-trillion dollar industry that is built on misinformation, weak evidence, and the exploitation of people's concerns and fears. Tell us more about the exploitation. You, you, I don't know if you coined this term science exploitation or, or, you know, I've heard you use it before. What, tell us more about that and how that impacts us. So, so the exploitation of, of the wellness that happens in the wellness industry, I think it's I think it's complex, and and you know you could build a career studying this because um, often the wellness industry is justified 
with some reasonableness <laughs> on the fact that people are not being served by the conventional healthcare system, particularly women and you know people of color, um, you know immigrants. And I totally get that. And there's research to back that up. You know, there's the famous study that suggests that physicians stop listening to patients after 11 seconds. I'm sure you've heard mm -hmm. of that, you know, that study. There's sure. been other studies that have sort of replicated the spirit of that, that finding. Um, I've gone to, I think, every alternative healthcare provider, you know, in the world. I mean, the types, different types, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And and they've almost without exception, it's been a positive experience. You know, you spend an hour with someone, they're listening to you, often they're touching you, they're they're giving you personalized advice. That doesn't happen when you go to your family physician or, you know, a specialist. But what's problematic is the wellness industry is exploiting that, that, that heart to sell um, pseudoscience, to sell products that don't work, and sometimes things that harm people. And also, I think it erodes critical thinking. The other thing they're doing, and this touch is, is a segue to science exploitation, and they're doing this increasingly, it wasn't always like this, is they're turning to scientific language in order to support their, their products and their brands. Um, so they, in the past, and I don't know if you've seen this, this trend also, in the past, you had alternative practitioners, wellness gurus talking about spiritual practices or different ways of knowing. Um, that doesn't happen so much anymore. They say you've got to do a cleanse or take homeopathy uh, because it's good for your microbiome or because of quantum physics, right? Or, or because of stem cell language. Uh, and that is science exploitation and it's become the norm and it's mm -hmm. problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. One, it, it works. Unfortunately, there are studies that have shown if you use sciencey language, it does, you know, create this, this veneer of credibility that can have a real impact. And the other reason it's problematic is a whole bunch of reasons it's problematic, but another reason is it, it erodes our understanding of science, right? It confuses, uh, it just confuses our information environment about what's the real science and what's not the real science, right? And, you know, as I said, we've done a lot of studies that found this is a, a very common theme, um, especially with the alternative medicine practitioners, um, and that it is, I, I think, very, very confusing. Mm, no, that, it, there's so much to dive into here. Um, you know, I, I always go back to when you have sort of this exploitation, and now I agree with you that we're seeing more of these sciencey sounding words that are used, and it makes it sound more legitimate. But then if you add on top of that, uh, a celebrity or an yeah. influencer, um, a beautiful individual or somebody with a great personality, how does that then sort of add to the influence? And why are people more susceptible to messages from those types of individuals? Um, well, we know they are more susceptible. And it's fascinating. I'm sure you've experienced this when you say, oh, celebrities are, are having a really adverse impact or influencers. A lot of people say, oh, I don't listen to celebrities. I don't think Gwyneth Paltrow or Aaron Rodgers is you know, a credible source of scientific information. But we know they have an impact, right? You, we've, you know, there's studies that have measured the impact that they're their rhetoric can have. And I think that's for a number of reasons. One, number one, of course, it's just the megaphone, right? The more you hear something, um, the more likely you are to believe it, right? And and you probably you know this this research from cognitive psychology. If you can recall recall it faster, you're more likely to believe it. So if Aaron Rodgers says it or Tom Brady, you know, you're more likely to remember that, it's more likely to seem believable. 
even if you don't remember the source, right? You mm -hmm. and in fact, there's a, some studies have shown that you that you'll find in your mind a more credible source than Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or Gwyneth Paltrow to justify your position, even if you originally heard it from a celebrity. So the megaphone matters. The second thing is um, they are a very an anecdote, right? Basically, a celebrity is a powerful testimonial, and study after study has told us that you know an anecdote, a testimonial, a story can sort of short circuit our ability to think scientifically. And, and I think that's especially too true if that celebrity, you know, speaks to your values, or you relate to them, or you aspire to be like them, it can make that anecdote all the more, all the more powerful. And again, studies have back, back this up. And the other thing I think often happens is um, they play to our negativity bias. So you'll have a celebrity that will, will say something, you know, about a product or, or about, you know, a health strategy, um, and they'll hang it on a scary anecdote. And, you know, Aaron Rodgers did that with, you know, his comments about the COVID vaccines, you know, uh, Nicki Minaj, uh, mm -hmm. her famous tweet about her friends, cousins, testicles. You know, I often <laughs> use that as an example. Um, if you don't remember, you know, she said that she knows of someone whose testicles became enlarged because of the COVID vaccine. That's a perfect example of the power of celebrity, right? She has a big megaphone. She's telling a story about this testicle <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's scary, right? So it plays to all of our cognitive biases and that gives it more traction. You know, the celebrities are also, they, we, we feel like we know them, right? They're, we welcome them on our devices and into our homes in many cases for years and years and years. And, and we feel like we just, we know them because they're always on camera talking. We know their personalities and it's very familiar to us. Is there any evidence or do we have any idea of as medical professionals, if we can get our voices and faces out there as well using social media or Instagram or YouTube, and if we can become more familiar, does that make us more trustworthy as well? Or am I just reaching it, you know, grasping at straws here? I think you're right. I think you're right. And uh, um, there's re research that backs up, you know, your suspicions of, about celebrities too, right? That there is this parasocial relationship that people have have with with celebrities and you know social media has only intensified that like we feel like you're you know you're looking into their bathroom and you know, looking into their kitchen and you feel like you know their kids and you know i'm a huge sports fan and i and i feel like i know these 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 athletes that i follow which of course you don't um and um i i think there's this interesting tension i think with scientists with researchers with clinicians because we want those voices out there. We absolutely do. And um, you've seen the research, I'm sure. Yes, there's been this massive erosion in trust in all of our institutions, but healthcare providers, especially physicians, remain amongst the most trusted voices. So I think that you know, your community can have such a huge impact on fighting misinformation, especially um, if you talk about the degree to which there's a scientific consensus, and I'm going to, I would love to come back to that point. Mm -hmm. um, but the tension, I think, is um, you don't, you know, some, I, I think some people are worried that you're going to lose your credibility because you're going to come off as glib and frivolous and, and that you, you lose the very credibility that, that gives you sway in the public sphere. But I think given how noisy our, our information environment has become and, and given the, the need to have good content out there, I think we should err on the side of engagement and getting out there and, and, having, and having an impact. 
Uh, what, you know, I've been sort of talking about use of social media as a medical professional within my own specialty and beyond for a while now. And I, I tend to get a lot of feedback from my colleagues of either I don't have enough time for it. Um, I'm, you know, I don't have the personality for it, all kinds of excuses not to do it. So for those who don't want to engage uh, for whatever reason, which is fine, it's not for everybody. What would you say to them in regards to the importance of them at least better understanding how social media and all these factors are influencing the patients that we're trying to care for? Oh, well, first of all, I, I agree with you. Dean. You, want, you really want to encourage and support those healthcare providers who do want to get out there and engage. And so I, I'm a, a big advocate of, of having our institutions support those individuals who are doing it. So, you know, the, whether you're talking about a hospital or a university or a professional organization, they should really support their members who do want to get out there and and fight the good fight. And I'd like to see more of that. And, I, and by the way, I mean, support it by recognizing that this is an important part of their job and they should be mm -hmm. rewarded in their career for doing it. It's not a frivolous thing they do off the side of their desk. This is centrally important, right? Um, this, the second way I think they need to be supported is in the resources, if they need resources to do it and time to do it, but also legally. Sometimes, you know, you need to have that kind of legal support in order to feel like, okay, I can speak the truth without, you know, having to worry about repercussions. So I, I think we need more of that. And I'd also think that institutions have to start playing a bigger role. So professional societies, um, again, hospitals, research institutions, et cetera. Um, and the other thing, I, I, and I think this has changed over the past five, six, seven years. Uh, I, I think that we need growing recognition of the role of social media. You know, I, I mm -hmm. just like think of something like TikTok, right? I, I often get to speak to physicians, you know, and I'll ask how many people here are on, on TikTok? And I'll, you know, there's maybe be hundreds of people in the audience and a smattering will put up their hand, right? Mm -hmm. But 2 billion people on planet earth are on TikTok. <laughs> you know, you have to recognize <laughs> This is how humans are getting their information now. They're getting their information about allergy and asthma and, and healthcare practices from TikTok, from TikTok. And so we really need to recognize that this is, is having a, an impact. The other thing I hear from a lot of my colleagues um, is they're, they're just unaware of how the social media, the social media algorithms influence all of us on our feeds. Can you speak to that a little bit about how uh, those algorithms really drive the content that each of us see when we log on to, you know, X or Instagram or TikTok or whatever that is? It's so true, isn't it, Dave? It really is. And, and this is actually a topic that we've studied. Um, you're, I always say, you know, that, that first page of a Google search. So if we're just talking about search engines, right? That first page of a yeah. Google search, that's your information universe, right? That's your universe. Uh, no one goes to the second page, right? You know, mm -hmm. where do you where do you hide a, a dead body on the on the second page of a Google search, right? Because <laughs> no one goes there. Um, and and in fact, studies have shown that many people just look at the top snippet. And our own mm -hmm. research has found that you know you Google something like immune boosting. We've done a study on this. Um, it's filled with misinformation. Right? It's just filled that that first search, and that's all the algorithm. Right. It's pushing now, you know, entities like Google say they're trying to tweak the algorithm to make sure that that's not the case. But, you know, their efforts are have only had a you know marginal impact. So, yeah, that that uh, the, with algorithms, the algorithm has a huge role. Algorithms with social media platforms, massive role. Like so there have been studies of, for example, of TikTok that have found that as much as 20 percent of what is pushed by the 
TikTok algorithm has misinformation in it. And for some topics like the COVID vaccine, as much as 50%, as much mm-hmm. as 50% has misinformation in it. And that's, you know, the algorithm creates our information environment. Um, and not only is it push misinformation, but it also helps to create these echo chambers that are so, so harmful. It helps to create these you know, misinformation communities. Mm-hmm. Um the algorithms are 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 kind of creating our our knowledge ecosystem, and you know that's that's scary. Well, what advice do you have for pretty much all of us? So, is does humanity stand a chance against social media and and the way the world you know <laughs> exchanges information these days? What can each of us do to sort of make sure that we get the right information when we're looking online? Well, I'm, I'm ever the optimist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I. So let's start with the good news, right? <laughs> so the good news, I think, is that we have more and more research um, that is informing our, our fight against misinformation. And, you know, I, I, I've been studying this for a really long time, and I've never seen anything like, you know, we're seeing now. And in part, in part, that's because there's growing recognition of how problematic this is. So there's more funding going into misinformation research. The studies are getting bigger and more robust. You know, their methods, I think, are becoming more interesting and um, more rigorous. So that's all really good news. So we're, we're learning about things like pre-bunking and how to best debunk, uh, what kind of regulatory strategies might actually make a difference. So that's all all really good news. Um, the bad news is, um, I, I, you know, there's so much bad news, but let me just pick two. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't get it. So I, I'm, I'm not too negative. Um, the first is, is the role of ideology. I, I've been studying this health misinformation for a long time, and I've never seen anything like it. You know, it's all about ideology now. I mean, who could have can you believe the degree to which being anti-vax has become an ideological flag i mean it's just mm-hmm. and so depressing so depressing right um you know ivermectin uh, it's it's an ideological flag you know if you i you could go and ask someone on the street in canada and the united states a couple of questions about you know vaccines and ivermectin and depending on how they answer those two questions you could probably guess their response to 20, 30, 40 other topics, right? That's the degree to which this has become about ideology. And and why that's so scary is once something becomes about your ideology, about your worldview, about how you identify yourself, it does become more difficult to change their minds, right? And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. all these topics from supplements, uh, you know, obviously vaccines, uh, to to yoga, is become about ideology as much as become about you know hoping this helps you or your your view on that and i'm going on for a long time but i think this is a really important topic and if i could i just reference one other study that came out really recently so depressing but it really speaks to what's going on here the study was looking at the degree to which the public and physicians views on covid therapies has become polarized right and so they studied, again, the views of both the public and physicians. And the strongest predictor for, for physicians and the public on your views on COVID therapies, the strongest predictor, the strongest correlation was the cable news show that you watched. Mm, right? mm-hmm. So think about that. In the U.S., you go to see a doctor and your doctor's opinion of a COVID therapy 
is more linked to whether they watch Fox News or CNN than the science. That is horrifying, but that's where mm-hmm. we are right now. So the ideology thing is a big problem. The second th- reason I'm becoming more pessimistic, you could probably guess this, AI. You know, oh, AI yeah. is just going to transform the misinformation landscape and not for, for the better. Um, I want to get back to that in a second, but I, you, you, you made me think of something. In um, late 2020, when um, the, vac- the COVID vaccines were first being deployed, when you looked at the map in the United States of willingness to receive the vaccine, with darker colors being more willing, lighter colors less willing, it matched up perfectly with the electoral map of where people voted in the presidential election that year based upon Democratic or Republican. And that, like you said, the ideology, people just identify with this and then they, they dig their heels in and they're unwilling to listen to any you know, alternative viewpoints. It's, it's so scary. And, and since then, it's only gotten worse. It's only gotten mm-hmm. worse. There was a study that came out today from a Kaiser um, that found you know, who's going to get the booster. And it oh, is just yeah. incredible the degree that it maps onto to ideology, you know, being, you know, your partisanship is the number one predictor of views on vaccines. And and that's in the United States, right? That, you know, partisanship is a stronger predictor than race, than income, than education, uh, than insurance. Uh, it's, it's stunning and so depressing. Uh, before we get to AI, um, this also touches upon what I consider to be a frightening aspect of the world that we live in today, where we have actual medical professionals and experts who are, who are lending their time. Uh, Dr. Peter Hotez comes to mind, uh, and they're putting out evidence-based information into the world, and they are becoming victims of target attacks by people with very large platforms, uh, celebrities. And you know, this is becoming, you know, they're physically in, in danger at this point, not to mention just uh, everything that's going on online to ruin the reputation. What are your thoughts on that, and can anything be done? Yeah, it is horrifying, and you know, I've and if I've experienced it myself, uh, you know, the death threats, I've been sued. Um, there are parody accounts. Uh, they, people have, you know, talked about my kids and my wife and my, uh, my in-laws. Um, it is, um, really problematic. And that goes back to what I said earlier about support. So, um, and I, I'm sure Peter would agree with, with this, you know, What's really worrisome is that the young scholars, young clinicians coming in are going to hesitate to get involved in public engagement because of this. And we can't let that happen because the trolls, the harassers win if that if you do that. And Dave, it's really interesting because I find myself sometimes I pause posting something because I thought, oh, God, do I need the trolls? Do I need my inbox to fill up with hate mail? That's them winning. You know, mm-hmm. and we can't let that we can't let that happen. I've even seen, and I and I won't say what public health aid entity this is, but I've seen public health entities pause or or reframe how they talk about masks because they don't, you know, for, or other things, other interventions because they don't want to get this polarized discourse. That's horrific because it's letting that you know those people. That's exactly their goal, right? That to create that chill. And, you know, we, we just can't let them win. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I've shifted a lot of my time from um, X, whatever Twitter is now, uh, more to more towards Instagram, just because I've, I find it to be more uh, 
engaging and just more pleasant overall. But um, every once in a while, I will um, intentionally poke the bear because you know it, you, you know how to rile up either the anti-vaxxers or others. And you know, I'll, I'll use the the I'll choose my words very carefully. And you you put out that that one sort of post, and then they just come out of the woodwork. Uh, and you do it, and you just walk away, and you say, "Yeah, it's this is the this is the way it is now, and this these are the algorithms." But it's just it's so sad and so frightening. Yeah, and I think the other thing we need to remind ourselves is, you know, social media is not the world. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and this goes back to this idea of consensus I was talking about. There was a fascinating study from Europe that found that four out of five people believe that the medical community is divided on the value of COVID vaccines. Think about that. Four out of five people in this study believed that the the medical profession was divided. Um, and in reality, there's almost universal consensus about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. And that in their study, over 90% of physicians, only 2% had any concerns, but the public believed they were divided. And that's because of all the loud trolls on social media platforms, you know, creating this false balance perception of, of the discourse. And the, the good news is when you explain to people the strength of the scientific consensus, many people shifted their perspective. Not everyone, mm -hmm. <laughs> not everyone, but you did get a shift in perspective. But our current information environment is a massive false balance machine, right? A both-sidedism machine that we've got to push back against. Mm -hmm. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So let's get to artificial intelligence. Why does this scare the hell out of you? It, it really does. Um, and you know, I'm, I, I, I'm someone who's done research on the problems of science hype and ethics hype. And I would say, Oh, you know, people, you know, people are exaggerating the harms uh, of cloning or people are exaggerating the harms of genetic discrimination. And, you know, we've got to make, take a more balanced approach here. This isn't an exaggeration, I don't think. <laughs> you know, I really can cannot believe how fast AI has taken off. One of my kids actually works in this in this space, and she told me a year ago um, that oh, AI is going to be, you know, this massive de development. I didn't believe her, <laughs> and then like three months later, it it has has taken off. No, yeah, we need to make sure we have evidence informed uh, opinions on on this. Um, our policies on this. But if you just look at the degree to which AI can create content, you know, misinformation, the the, the degree to which AI can create, you know, fake uh, science papers. I don't know if you saw that study that came out quite mm -hmm. recently that found that yeah. AI can make very believable abstracts and very believable science documents. The degree to which AI can create these believable images. There was a study that came out again, I'm going to say just weeks ago, that found up to 50% of educators couldn't tell the difference between an AI generated image and a real one. These are these deep fakes, right? Mm -hmm. um, so just the ability to create believable content very quickly, sort of at an industrial scale is going to make fighting misinformation even more challenging. Layer on top of that, the role of state actors, right? Mm -hmm. Using AI to push out content, to create doubt, to create dissent. And we have a very scary future. Have you encountered a deep fake Timothy Caulfield on YouTube yet saying that the COVID vaccines are turning us all into magnets or anything like that? Uh, I have seen um, 
a lot of yes. So the short answer is yes. <laughs> I wasn't on YouTube, and I don't even want to say where I saw it because I don't want <laughs> to drive people to that. But uh, yes, I have seen a lot of strange AI-generated images of myself, and you know, my colleagues. Um, yeah, very, very frustrating. Oh my gosh, that, that it really is. It's scary. Well, if I may, how do you deal with it all? You have a lot coming at you. A lot of it negative, a lot of positive, and I, I know you find this very rewarding. You're also very generous with your time, and thank you again for joining us. So, two two quick questions: Do you ever get stressed out by all the awful things you encounter? And and if so, how do you balance it all? What what's your how do you get away and reset your mind? I, I do find it exhausting. I'm sure you do too, Dave. And mm -hmm. and sometimes I'll I'll see. Um, you know, a post or some, you know, bit of misinformation or a politician saying, saying something. And I just find it exhausting. It's like, oh my God, I, I don't know if I have the psych, psychic strength to, <laughs> to deal with this. Um, and, you know, I, I have very thick skin and I like to believe that it doesn't bug me, but the hate and the trolling and the, the lies, when people are spreading lies about you and then you see semi-credible people believe it, you know, that, that, that is really that that can be very frustrating because there's no point in arguing, right? You know, I ignore the trolls, ignore the trolls, ignore the mm -hmm. trolls. So that would be one of my first bits of advice. You know, don't feed the trolls, just totally ignore them. Um, I think that is almost always the best, the best strategy. Um, the other good news, and, and you're part of, uh, of this is there is a wonderful, wonderful science communication community out there. Don't you agree? And yes. they are very empowering. Um, and they're just a, a fantastic, fun, creative, supportive group of individuals that come from all you know walks of life you know all these different kinds of disciplines and i find that really uh empowering and i uh, draw on it a lot <laughs> <laughs> um we all seem to have each other's backs right and yeah. um so i would say that to young scholars coming up or young people who want to get involved in this you know come be part of our community you you won't regret it it, it is tough it can be exhausting but it is also incredibly rewarding and so so important now i think it's one of the most important fights we have there was a study that came out um last year late last year it was a big big survey almost twenty thousand people involved in it 17 countries i think and and misinformation was right up there with climate change when mm -hmm. we talk about world um problems and so yeah I, it's an important fight mm -hmm. oh wow well um where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to check out the the stuff you're putting out there so I'm still on X on Twitter. <laughs> I'm still there. Caulfield Tim. I'm on Instagram. Caulfield Tim. I'm on Threads. Caulfield Tim. I'm on Facebook. Um, all the all the usual places. And 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 I, and I would love to have some positive vibes <laughs> to, <laughs> to balance the trolls. Yeah. Well, uh, Timothy, really, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, you're a very special guest for our 100th episode. This was a great conversation. We could probably talk about this stuff for days, <laughs> not just hours for days. So I think we, we covered a lot of ground. This is very insightful and very helpful. Uh, before we depart, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, well, thank you very much for the opportunity. And thanks for everything that you're doing. And, you know, thanks to your community. You know, I see a lot of people from your community out there doing amazing stuff. And I, I really, really appreciate it. And I I, I try to, to share it when I can. Yeah, well, thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.